Howdy, everyone, and thank you again for tuning in to the Jeffersonian Tradition. Before we get started, I have a couple of things to go over. For now, the podcast is mostly ad-free, and I sure would like to keep it that way. You can help me out with that by becoming a supporting listener. If you find value in the podcast, there's a link in the show notes page that will enable you to contribute to my work and to help keep the podcast going and keep it light on advertising. If you're not comfortable with a recurring contribution model, I've also set up a cash app profile for the show. And one-time contributions can be sent to the show's cash tag, which is dollar sign Mr. Jeffersonian. And all of this information will be listed in the show notes page as well. Any contribution amounts help and thank you in advance to anyone who chooses to pitch in. And for my supporters, I recently introduced an exclusive tier for y'all, and it's called Mr. Jeffersonian's Ward Republic. Perks of being a supporting listener currently include one video call with me and the other Ward Republic members each month, and up to 40 minutes each call. It's a great atmosphere, and we'd love to have you there. All you need to do to become a member of the Ward Republic is start contributing today at the $4.99 per month level through the Anchor link, or if you'd rather go through Cash App, then you can round it up to $5 per month. Um, essentially, as long as it comes out to $60 per year, you're, you're going to be covered. And speaking of groups, if you aren't on MeWe yet, then seriously, what are you waiting for? Unlike a certain other social media platform, MeWe respects the right to free speech and offers a privacy bill of rights. So if you'd like to be a member there, then download the MeWe app and search for me at the username Mr. Jeffersonian. And just for basic group level access, I'm always going to keep that free. So if you can't afford to contribute, that's perfectly fine. You can still come into the group, see what we're discussing over there. We'd love to have you. The show group is private, so we must be contacts before I can send you that group invite. And if you're not familiar with MeWe's platform, contacts are the same as being friends on Facebook. With all of that fun stuff out of the way, let's now turn our attention to the topic for today's episode. All right, so today we have Rabbi Stephen Axman with us. Uh, he is also from the Liberty Block, and y'all may think that that name sounds familiar, and that's actually because Tuesday's episode was an interview with the rabbi's son, Alu. And Rabbi Axman, thank you so much for your time and for coming on the show, and how are you today? My pleasure coming on. Thanks for having me, and thank God we're doing well. That's good. That's, that's good. That's what I like to hear. So we're hopefully going to be able to cover a lot of topics today, if the time permits. But if I'm not mistaken, you're from New York. Is that correct? Well, you are mistaken. I'm born and bred in Baltimore, Maryland. That's B-A-W-L-M-E-R. Get it straight. Um, I've lived in New York a total of 20-some years. I've also lived in Israel for several and a few other fun places. Okay, absolutely. Are you in New York City? I am. Very sadly, I am in Northeast Queens, which is New York City in a really wonderful neighborhood, but it's still part of New York City. Okay, absolutely. So what what is the situation in New York right now, especially after the whole chicken um, the whole chicken battle over the vaccines within the healthcare industry? What's the scene up there right now? So from what I can tell detail-wise, we're still the strictest of anywhere in the state. So if I want to go out with my wife to eat, we have to hop over to Long Island. I'm the part of Queens. I don't know if you know New York very well, but Long Island is like five minutes away, which makes it incredibly unfair to restaurants that are in this area, because if you can go five minutes away and walk in, I believe it's the same for movie theaters and many other types of businesses. So I happen to be vaccinated, although they can change that since I only got two and they can change it to three tomorrow, like they've done in Israel. So there's a whole bunch of stuff we can't do. Thank goodness the gyms are open, but you have to have a vaccine card. 
Masks, thank goodness, are voluntary because for months and months they were mandatory in the city, even if they weren't in the state. And they are not fun when you're working out in the gym. I can so imagine. to my knowledge, we can't go to a movie either if you're not vaccinated. We have to go to Long Island. Oh, wow. Okay. Are any of the businesses starting to push back against this? I can't tell you from personal knowledge if New York City, I mean, I know there have been like rallies and stuff in the city, in Manhattan, I believe, and marches and stuff against it. It's hard to know how big that movement is. What I found is our only hope is for the left to protest, you know, when the nurses unions start protesting it and the police unions, which is left and right, but they're also against it. I think firefighters unions are coming out against it. So at the moment, are people fighting back in any effective way? I don't know. I do know that someone said to me, I don't want to in any way identify this person, but someone heavily involved in the gym said that we're pretty much at our limit. And the only thing between us and total dictatorship is 2A, which does not exist in New York City whatsoever. To, to get a permit in New York City, I believe, is six months added on to impossible. So there's a lot of anger about it. But I don't know how much we can do about it. You know, we have a mayoral election in a couple of weeks in the off year, and we will get rid of de Blasio, who's as far left as they come. But it's not likely we'll do that much better. Okay. Well, I, I just hope it doesn't go the way of the um, governor's office because I, I, I didn't think it was possible to get worse than Cuomo until I saw what you guys have now. And she is, ooh. Yeah, she's a doozy. Um, you know, Curtis Sliwa, I don't know if you remember him at all. You know him? I'm not familiar. So Curtis Sliwa was super famous. He he started the Guardian Angels, which was not really a vigilante group, more of a protective type group in New York many years ago. He also was on a radio show for many years called Curtis and Kubi. And the thing was, Curtis was far right and Kubi was far left. And it was actually a pretty interesting radio show. And he's running for mayor as a Republican. Um, nothing personal. I do like you, but he has the same chance of being mayor of New York, I think, as you do. Okay. And for the sake of our audience, you're not running. Right. Well, so, you know, I, I kind of take Hank Williams Jr. stance on that. Uh, you can send me to hell or New York City. To me, it'd be about the same. So that, that's kind of right. my stance. So it's hard to know if the new mayor, which will probably be, be Eric Adams, who I believe is a ex-cop, um, he probably will be a little better on some things, and that's my hope. Okay, absolutely. Well, on the far left and far right paradigm, uh, recently, obviously, I had a chance to sit down and talk with Marcus Ruiz Evans. You actually facilitated that uh, coming together. So you're actually a member of the CalExit movement, even though you are on the more right end of the spectrum and also in New York City. So can you tell us why you want to be a part of that? So what had happened is, I don't know how much Alu filled you in. A couple of years ago, Marcus reached out to a whole bunch of secessionist groups all over the country. And he tracked down Liberty Block. And his basic question was, we want to secede. Everybody tells us it won't happen because the conservatives will never let us go. Is that your opinion? And we had this little group on email, I think from like 13 states, and unanimously, everybody was like, are you kidding? We would love for you to leave. And that went on for months. And then everything sort of dropped out of sight. And then last December, Marcus put out a call that he's trying to get Cal exit. Sometimes they call it Yes, California back up and running. 
And would I be a member of their Congress, what they call, they kept changing the name. But I said, definitely, um, because I agree with you on almost nothing, except for the fact that we will get along a lot better after we're divorced than before. And he has one or two other relatively conservative people, one cat legs it with him. And I think it's wonderful because we get along on the basis of we don't want to force each other's ways of life down each other's throats. No, absolutely. And, you know, just kind of in that in that spirit, judicial incorporation is something I've been focusing on a lot recently on the show. And seeing what they've done in Texas with SB8, that federal judge in Austin, Robert Pittman, I mean, that that's atrocious. Now, if California wants to do that, fine. But that should not be foisted on Texas, especially when the legislature, you know, at least ostensibly is acting on behalf of the citizens. So, well, I know you said that he reached out to you, but I mean, what other, I guess, conversations have you and Marcus been able to have around this? Because you guys right now are definitely like the two biggest influencers, in my opinion, along with Daniel Miller. Um, well, I know one of the things that gets him so riled up about California independence is the judiciary. Because whenever, or at least in his opinion, whenever they're able to get a good law passed and signed, it feels to him as if some federal judge wipes that out. And they're exactly like Texas in the sense that, wait a minute, we have 10 million people voted for something and one judge somewhere wiped it out. And that's ridiculous, which is what was interesting to me is my goal had been to get Texit and CalExit talking. And I think we're on the very early stages of that happening because no one was talking to both of them. And it was fascinating how they both said the exact same things from total opposite ends of the spectrum. They both feel put upon. They both feel like they have no self-determination, et cetera, et cetera. And rather than hating each other's guts, why don't we just peacefully separate, which is why I made that website for peaceful separation. So I've had a lot of talks with Marcus about a whole bunch of issues. But what what I love about talking to Marcus is it's win-win. If I agree with him, it's awesome. If I vehemently disagree with him, it's even more awesome because that's why we're getting divorced. Right. And sometimes I'll actually be on a Cal exit thing for hours. And some of the things that people say are so off the charts. You know, you've heard some of it that Biden's to the right of Trump, et cetera. And they really believe it. And then I remind myself, that's why I'm here. Yep. You know, I, I had the exact same thought when I was talking to him on, on my show. We we kind of got off on a healthcare tangent and I had the exact same thought. Like, I don't want to be forced in a union with these people. If that's their idea of what good healthcare is going to look like, even though we know it's probably not going to work. Okay. Let, let's just agree to disagree. You go your way and I'm going to go mine. But I think Mark- the mistake a lot of people made was why would you want to work with those wacko liberals? And that misses the point. The more wacko liberal I consider them, the more I want to help them. Yeah. So where's the, where's the losing part? Exactly. Especially if their goal, like in Marcus's case, to, is just to leave and leave us alone. That, that right. is exactly and they, they kind of know that. They kind of know that some of the things that they think I'm crazy about, I think they're crazy about. And we should help each other to peacefully separate. I think it's total win-win. Oh, oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. I agree with you wholeheartedly there. So now, Alu, when I was talking to him, he is on the more radical libertarian side of the spectrum. So we, we kind of talked about this off camera, but you had mentioned some issue with libertarians and open borders, especially as it pertains to secession. So what are your thoughts on that? So, you know, obviously, when you talk about all the objections to secession, 
And then you get this issue of, okay, now we seceded, but the, uh, I won't use the word they usually use for the refugees from Massachusetts. What in the world is going to stop them from moving here? Because it's going to be utopia. And within a year, they'll just vote the exact opposite of what we fought for into law. And that's really a major, major issue. So you have, my understanding of libertarians is there's a very wide spectrum of them. There's the capital L's and the lowercase L's, and then it's just this whole spectrum. And like you had mentioned before, some seem to be only concerned with weed. Some are what I call Woodstock libertarians, if you're old <laughs> enough to remember what Woodstock was. Um, and they believe firmly in open borders, and you can't really get them to answer the problem of, great, they're going to come in here and vote you back into the union and vote you back into the gulag. And so I think those libertarians are very difficult because I'm not going to fight alongside someone who's going to lose everything we fought for a year down the road. So it's not that I don't love them. It's not that I don't agree with their fight. It's just not going to work. And you don't really get anywhere in that argument, unfortunately. That's one of my problems with New Hampshire is to figure out which of the New Hampshire people who really want to secede are going to do it in a way that I think can work. And obviously that's a tough one because there's also some in the libertarian movement who are extreme pacifists. And I don't know where I am exactly on that spectrum, but I do know that if I create my libertarian utopia in New Hampshire and you invade it, I'm not laying down my arms. But there are some libertarians who feel that way as well. Right. Well, and that, that's something that the founding generation definitely, I'm, I mean, they understood that to a man. And it's it's sad because I've had a, kind of a somewhat public falling out with libertarianism, just kind of doing my show and then continuing to engage with them throughout everything that we've seen. But where, where I think libertarianism falls short in so many instances is they don't understand the cultural relevance of, of the system that we currently have and the system that even you and I probably want to see post-secession. So where, where it breaks down is, to your point about open borders, they don't stop and ask the question, what are we going to do to keep this? And that's exactly what you mentioned. So many of them are like, well, hey, if we, you know, if we just have these policies, obviously people are coming here for a reason and, and they're just going to vote to keep it in place. No, no, we, we have very in-your-face proof that's not the case. You have the Haitian immigrants coming in, very strong chance they're probably going to vote for the Democrats if they're able to vote at all, because who's giving them the handouts, right? And then to your point about even other American states, if New Hampshire leaves and folks from Connecticut or Massachusetts start coming in, they are very prone to bring in those bad ideas with them. So even if they don't vote them back in the union, the, the libertarian utopia is going to cease to exist because of the non-aggression principle, in my opinion. And that, to your point about pacifism, that is, especially throughout COVID, that is the one area I have yet to figure out who gets to define what aggression actually is and what do you do to stop it. There are some libertarians who say that private companies mandating experimental vaccines on their employees does not constitute aggression. I happen to be against that opinion. I think that is aggression, and you have to fight it with any means that you have. For me, it's preferentially through states' rights. But for some libertarians, they are more than willing to just keep standing back and, and take a more pacifistic approach where it's like, okay, I'm never going to fight. And if you're not going to fight, you're not going to keep it. And, and that's what I was saying is that's what the founders understood. 
if you think what you have is worthy of preservation, you must fight to keep it because nobody's going to maintain it for you. You have to maintain it for yourself. And so that that is a major critique of libertarianism that I've come to develop a- after spending years within the, the, the party. But it's, I mean, I, I don't know. I think it's almost useless at this point. You know, there's a great quote out there. I forget the exact quote, but it's, you know, the worst thing in the world isn't dying for your cause. It's having no cause to die for. And so there are some people, I try very hard not to stereotype libertarians because the more I learn about them, the more I learn that there's such a wide spectrum. They don't agree with each other on so many things. So one of their answers is, well, we're not going to have welfare and therefore they're not going to come. But people who want to control others will come because I may not be able to vote what I want now, but as soon as there's more of me than you, it will still be two wolves and a lamb deciding what's for supper, and we can make that happen. So unless somebody comes up with a great answer to this, I don't see how it can work with open borders. I just don't get it. Well, and and even within the context of the current union, and, and I'm going to pick on your state for a second. You know, people have been please, fleeing. Please, matter of <laughs> fact, take it, take it. Well, people have been fleeing New York. I mean, just in mass. You guys are actually going to be losing some federal seats uh, in in the midterms. But where are they going, and what's becoming of these areas? Well, they're going to North Carolina. What happened in North Carolina? It went from solidly red to almost blue. It, actually, I, did, did they go for Trump or did they go for Biden? I, I think they very, very slimly went for Trump this last I election. They went for Trump. Um, you know, it's interesting, Dan Bongino, who's, you know, back and forth on national divorce, et cetera, et cetera. But he's like, do not come to Florida. We do not want you here. Yeah. Well, and, and that's another area where, where they're where they are concentrating. You know, they're going to certain parts of Florida and they're going to North Carolina, some of the, some of the uh, eastern seaboard states or some of the southern eastern seaboard states. And unfortunately, in many cases, they're either one, bringing their bad ideas with them or two, maybe they're professors or something like that. And they get embedded in the school system. So if they're not directly contributing to it, then they're indirectly contributing to it because they, they take over the intellectual side of it. And that, that is a huge problem. And again, I agree with you wholeheartedly. That is a very bad shortcoming of, of libertarianism is because they don't stop and think that. Now, I, I think another problem with libertarians is, to your point, even libertarians don't agree on what is libertarianism. It's a very broad spectrum. You have people who are anarcho-communist. You have people who are anarcho-capitalist. Their definition of libertarian just basically boils down to as long as I don't force it on you, it's still libertarian. I don't think there can be any such thing as an anarcho-socialist or anarcho-communist. But again, you have people who that's literally what they think is we can have our communist utopia here, let's say in the state of Delaware, we, we can buy this little area, have a private commune. And even though it's communism, it's still libertarian because I'm not forcing it on you. So to that point, they can't even agree on, on what the definition of the term is. Now, in my mind, I, I think the purest form of libertarianism would be that inspired by Murray Rothbard which is basically the anarcho-capitalist variety because it's like, hey, this is total freedom. Like you you have full voluntary exchange. Everything about the system is voluntary. Everything about it, it can be conducted through private means. But again, in the broader sense of the people who identify as libertarian, nobody agrees on even on what the word means. And because of that, I think, again, I think they're going to be a useless factor in all this for the most part. Although Alu, he proved me wrong on that because... Alu has done a lot, and, and to my knowledge, Alu follows more on the anarcho-capitalist portion of the spectrum, and, and he's he's doing the Lord's work up there in New Hampshire and working with the state legislature. But now, I'll tell you, in fairness, when we knock libertarianism for being a broad spectrum and not knowing what they believe in, 
we can't forget that the same is true of the Republicans. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. You, know, you have a Republican Party now. And, and you know, I'm I, I'm free in my judgment of, of them, too. So many conservatives now, especially older ones. What do they want to conserve? FDR's America. That's that's not a conservative position. Right. So if I asked you what a Republican stand for, well, who are we talking about? Mitch McConnell, Donald Trump, et cetera, et cetera. So they also, you know, don't necessarily believe anything. I mean, George W. Bush has gone so far left. You know, his best buddies in the world are Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. And his worst enemies are probably me and you. So, I, I you know, when we knock the libertarians, we forget that the other parties have that same issue. Broad spectrum, don't know what they believe, don't fight for anything that they believe. I just, just want to put that out there. There's no, there's no salvation in the Republican Party. Well, I think, I think the reason I'm so bitter about this is because libertarians, at least used to, they presented themselves as, as the third option. It, like they presented themselves as, as a party of principle. That's actually, if you go to their website, that's like the whole thing. Oh, Libertarian Party, party of principle. And I think the problem is, especially with the two mainstream parties, yes, I, I will dole out my judgments you know, very generously on, on both of them. But we sort of expect that, at least when you come into the libertarian movement, most people get there because they understand that the two-party system is horrendous and that neither party really has principles. Now, you have a few people like uh, Thomas Massey, Rand Paul, Ron Paul, so on and so forth. But by and large, they understand that both parties are, are basically two sides of the same coin. So that that's where I guess I'm so bitter after being involved with libertarianism for so long. That That's why I've become so bitter about it is because ultimately it's you know, devolving into the same thing. It's just a, a different label for it. So, uh, you know, that that's my major critique of it is like, okay, it's it's been useless to fight COVID. The, the people who should have been the most radical have by and large been nowhere to be seen, or in some cases like the Cato Institute defending it. And then again, they're just kind of turning into a, a third milquetoast party that doesn't actually stand for anything. Yeah, I guess I, I consider myself a libertarian without being a libertarian. Okay, so small L, small L libertarian. It's kind of small L libertarian. You know, on my podcast a bunch of weeks ago, or was it a separate podcast? It was a separate podcast we did. There's a gentleman who's pretty far ANCAP, total anarchist, and he wrote a book with a pen name, a French pen name, which I don't remember exactly what it was, and a really interesting guy. And we had a debate with him for about an hour and a half, which got kind of loud at times. But I can understand where he's coming from and having almost zero government for any purpose. So in that sense, I don't have a problem with libertarians and they can make it make sense. Where they lose is if you don't defend it, then what? You're still going to have to defend it. You can't leave your doors open at night and call it your house. Right. And that's just a bad truth. Well, can they defend it? Yes. But also for, for me, and, and especially throughout COVID, where will they have the willingness to come out of the abstract and into the real world and, and actually understand what, what's going on? And that, that's been something I've talked about a couple of times on the show. Just the fact that they're still willing to die on the sort of Ancapistan that does not actually exist versus, hey, we need to fight this. And there, you know, there's been some libertarians, both at the think tanks like like Cato and Reason, but also even like ANCAPs who are just falling on this sword of saying, well, if a private company is mandating vaccines, then it's really not that big of a problem. Just go get a different job. What happens when a plurality or a small majority of jobs require that? Is my recourse, if I'm making $150,000 a year right now, 
to leave this job and go work at McDonald's for 30000 that's not a choice most people are going to be willing to make, in my, in my opinion. So that, that's, again, that, that's been my major, I guess, point right. of contention. So, with them. you know, if you followed our podcast, that EJS podcast, that was one of the debates that went on for a very long time and that Alu was convinced and changed his mind totally because he came from that libertarian side of it's a private company can do it at once because we feel strongly about, you know, you don't have to bake the cake and you don't have to do the invitation. And I go so far as I'm pretty much against any of the civil rights laws. It's my house. I'll tell you who comes in. It's my business. I'll tell you who comes in. Yet we were pretty much convinced by one of our co-hosts that because businesses are so regulated and so influenced by the government in so many ways, they really aren't private businesses at all. But that was a very long debate because you really have to wrench your beliefs totally from side to side. And it wasn't easy. And I don't, I don't blame people for it not being easy. You know, you know, I don't know if you follow Daniel Horowitz. He's on The Blaze and he's got a pretty interesting show. Um, some things I love about him, some things I don't. But he tends to say, because... You know, when they were doing the vaccine cards, and obviously there were a lot of people out there who were using fraudulent ones. And you got into this whole thing, is that ethical? Should you stand up for your integrity and quit rather than use a fraudulent card, etc.? So he uses the um, example of somebody kidnaps you and locks you up in a room, would you not break the window to get out? Right. That at a certain point, not breaking the law becomes absurd. At a certain point, not violating your quote unquote principles becomes absurd. So if you were in, and I don't want to use this lightly, but if you were in Auschwitz, would you not steal bread from the Nazi camp guards? And 99.9% of thinking human beings are going to say, yeah, I guess I would. And the other ones are going to starve to death, so they're not here to argue about it. And I think it kind of applies to this situation. Your principles are wonderful, but now what? Right. Well, and, and that's that's something else, too, you know, in, in terms of having medical exemptions or whatever the case may be, fake vaccine cards. I don't fault people who take that route, but one of my listeners actually sort of radicalized me on this. And, and I just kind of think to an extent we're still somewhat submitting to, I guess, the belief that they had the authority to make that decision for us in the first place. And so for, for anybody who's in a position where, where they can just outright refuse and say, no, I'm not doing this then I, I think that would be the preferred route. Would, would you agree with that? Or, or what are your thoughts there? My brain doesn't let me agree with it that simply. I think it's way too complicated. You know, um, because of my ethnicity and background, even though I didn't lose anybody in the Holocaust and it's a long time ago, but we think about it a lot. We talk about it a lot. And there were the Kapos, which were the Jewish guards. And they had life and death decision-making power over many of their fellow Jews. And generally speaking, we blame them and we call them murderers and cutthroats and traitors, etc. But on the other hand, you know, if it were me, and it's the only way I could save my life for one more day in the hopes that I could save one other life for one more day, and the choice is so horrible, maybe it's more of a gray area. So before I say people should give up their livelihoods without knowing what that means for their marriages, their children, their hopes and dreams, I tend to not be judgmental about it. And maybe that's just because I'm old. 
Well, and, and that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm not going to, for people who seek the exemptions, I'm, I'm not going to judge them. Like, I'm not going to sit here and, and call them a coward. Now, what I, what I will say is for people who, I guess, just submit to it outright without even trying to fight it, yes, I, I think there is an argument there. Like, come on, guys. Like, if you can't, you know, if you can't give up a football game or you can't give up this or you can't suffer some temporary discomfort, what's going to be the long-term implications of that? But just for anybody who actually is in a position, like especially younger people, younger people who may not have a family yet, I think the default response should be, no, I'm not doing this. It's my body. You don't get to make this decision for me. So I, I guess that's where I'm at. Like any anybody who takes the exemptions or takes the fake cards, I, I'm not going to fault them for that. If that's your tool to fight, that's your tool to fight. You know, it's, it's interesting. I boycott pretty much everyone who I consider trying to destroy this country. So whether that's Oprah, whether that's Cher, whether that's, you know, one of a million singers, entertainers, Hollywood actors, etc. As far as I'm concerned, if they're actively out there trying to destroy this country, then I don't want anything to do with them. Well, guess how many movies and songs that lets me listen to? I'm assuming very little. <laughs> very little. And being part of a social network it's really hard to keep friends and, and relatives that way. So, you know, I do not watch the NFL. I love football. I haven't watched an NFL game in years. I don't watch baseball. I don't watch basketball. But at a certain point, if you want to be part of the world, it's hard to separate from everybody who doesn't go out that far on principle. And it's hard to not have anything you can do with anybody. So it's like, you won't go to any movies. Well, yeah, I won't go to a Clooney movie and I won't go to a Matt Damon. I love the Bourne series. When I see Matt Damon, I shut the TV. Frankly, now, does that make me a hero? No, but I try to be like a teensy tiny bit. I'm not going to give you a nickel of my money. Right. But at a certain point, there's nothing you can do. So it's really hard to, you know, judge people how far they're willing to withdraw from society or fight society on these issues. Right. Well, and it's, you know, to, to that point, I, I kind of had a realization similar to that earlier this year. So I, I absolutely love to travel, especially international travel. And we were supposed to go back to Europe. And uh, my wife and I actually went to Washington back in August to, to see my in-laws. The experience we had as far as all the masks and, and just the way that the, the flight attendants were acting and everything else, even the airport, the people in the airport, I refuse. Like, and I told my wife, I'm like, look, if we don't go to Europe for another five years, like we don't go to Europe for another five years, but I'm not doing this again. So we're actually going to be going to Tennessee at, towards the end of this week. And we had a chance to get a very cheap flight. And I, I still, I had to stand my ground and my wife wasn't necessarily super happy about that. Cause it's going to be a 20 hour drive, but I'm like, I'm not flying. They are not getting a penny from me. Well, I drive to Florida a lot more than I, <laughs> than I fly there. But you know what? We lost this battle. And I hate to say it because I was a Reagan conservative. And when TSA was formed, I, without knowing the details, I was kind of for it. We need to, you know, protect ourselves. I've moved very far away from that and specifically with TSA. And let's just say that people who love me and are stuck traveling with me are not always happy at my growling and barking when I'm anywhere near TSA. And it's usually like, please don't get yourself arrested before we get on this plane. So again, when you have to deal as part of a social network, it's really difficult to protest that and they will arrest you. Right. So we lost all of this with TSA. We are such sheep with that, that this is just a mop-up operation. 
Well, and is anybody wholesale protest the TSA? Not, not that I can think of. But you know, it's it's crazy. Hey, have you ever gone through any of the European airports? I've gone to a whole bunches of them. Yeah, it is such a night and day difference compared to going to the airport here in the in the U.S. When we went to Switzerland, uh, that's honestly probably the best airport experience I've ever had in my life. I didn't have to take anything out of my pockets. Got to leave my shoes on. Didn't have to take my belt off, and. Everything was hunky dory. We got through security in probably less than five minutes, even though there was a line of probably a hundred people in front of us. And uh, you know, it's crazy because even even with the amount of screening that TSA does, what what is it? They fail like what what was it like ninety five percent of their tests? They they fail when they do the simulations. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because I, I did live in Israel for many years, and Israel has pretty much the best record for airports and flight safety since they went through so much in the sixties and the seventies. But their screening process is pretty much more pleasant than TSA. They're extremely well-trained. If you blink in the wrong direction, they'll get you. But they don't get every single person has to be, you know, put through the ringer. So it's, it used to be it was horrible to fly with an Israeli airlines and so much fun to fly with an American. Today, it's pretty much the opposite. The Israelis know what they're doing. They apparently, they follow you from the time you go anywhere in the airport grounds. They start looking at you. By the time they start asking you questions, they know what they're looking at. They know what they're looking for, and they don't need to bother you. In America, we do it the exact opposite. And as somebody pointed out long ago, we herd hundreds of people into this packed crowd with a bunch of velvet, what do they call those things? Where they're absolute sitting ducks for anybody, and there's zero security yet. And we do that in the name of protecting them from somebody who would harm them. And that makes sense. How? (laughs) But we're such sheep. You know, we don't protest. I remember being in an airport where they stopped us like an 18, 20 year old girl. And, you know, the whole thing, put your hands up and put your hands out and spread your legs and patted her up and patted her down in front of the whole world. And my idea of America, the Matt Dillon times of America, somebody would have shot those people. That was so horrific, but we're just a bunch of sheep. No one says boo. Right. No. And, you know, on this on this topic, one one other thing I, I'll bring up just, just because you reminded me of it and it was very humorous. Hey, have you ever flown into Iceland? No, I have not. We went to Iceland. And uh, w- w- so when we did our European trip, we actually were over there for about three weeks. We, we saw all different kinds of countries and Iceland is where we finished the trip uh, before coming back to the States. We... In all the other countries, when we would enter the country, that's when they want to see our passports that, you know, that's when they want to make sure we are who we say we are and all that stuff. Well, we get to Iceland and we get off the plane and there's like no customs that that we went to. And it was really weird. And so we're just kind of like walking through the airport and we're like, hey, man, like nobody's going to check us. This is kind of strange. And we get on, you know, we get on our bus, go to our hotel, stay a couple of days. Well, when we get ready to leave, that's when they vet you when you want to leave. And I'm like, that. Like that is so ass backwards. That doesn't make any sort of sense whatsoever. But that that's how they do it there. Or at least when we went, that's how they did it. Nobody asked us any sort of questions, checked our IDs or anything until we wanted to leave the country. And it's like, look, whatever harm I may have wanted to do, I, I've probably already done it. Mm-hmm. Of course, you could joke and say who wants to go to Iceland, but I have a son who does want to go there and I'll hook him up with you. Well, but yeah, <laughs> I mean, TSA... When you look back at how cowed we are as a population, you know, I tell my kids, basically, they've all moved out of New York, and I'm really, really happy for them. They all live in free states. They all can and or do carry, et cetera, et cetera. 
But I do remember a time when you did say, get off my land. Oh, yeah. And it wasn't a given that a Fed could come to your house. And we've changed in my lifetime to being so unbelievably cowed at everything. Well, I want your opinion on this. And this is something I've talked with my uncle about quite a few times. Where was the real outrage and and long-lasting change after Ruby Ridge? To my knowledge, absolutely nothing. And and that blows my mind. Like, and by the way, you know who's at fault for that? that well, it was the FBI and the ATF, if I'm not mistaken. Um, well, you're talking to somebody who's at fault for that, because as a conservative and a law and order guy, and that's how I was raised, I was not on the side of the people who were, you know, beaten down at Ruby Ridge, and even Waco took me a long time to flip the script because when you're totally raised in the law and order, you know, military dad, et cetera, et cetera, whatever the cops do by definition is good. Whatever the other people do by definition is bad. And again, that's a gut wrenching change to say, wait a minute. Right. Well, and, and, you know, so I was brought up in a similar fashion. I I actually did four years in, in the army myself, but it took me a little while to break that, and and I can understand that because my default response, and I'm I'm ashamed to admit this now, but when when the whole Michael Ferguson ordeal happened, my default response was, well, if he would have done what the cops said, then he you know he would nothing bad would have happened. Now, granted, there are some things in that Ferguson case where okay, may, now with the benefit of nuance, I do understand. I don't think that could have ended another way because it involved an an altercation over the officer's gun. But in instances where people literally are just laying there not doing anything, there was a guy, um, his name was, I I think, McKenzie something. This this happened, I think, in 2018, 2019. He responded, he he was a caretaker of of a kid who had Down syndrome. Oh, I know who you mean. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the cops were called to the scene, and the guy, you know, the, the caretaker was a black male, but... He, he was trying to tell the cops like, Hey, don't, don't shoot. Don't shoot. You know, he, he's just got some mental problems. He he's okay. We can get him back under control. Just don't shoot. This dude went and laid down. The caretaker did lay down in the middle of the street on his back, hands and feet up in the air. And the cops still shot him. And I'm like, there is no excuse for that. And so I, you know, I understand because it took me a while to get to the point where it's like, let's at least question what the cops are saying because cops are not above lying. So, you know, I, um, I I would say the hardest line between the conservative and libertarian is making peace with the police being always right and not always right. So I decided a bunch of years ago when I was detained by cops for something that, you know, they say a conservative is a liberal who's been mugged. So I said a libertarian is a conservative who's been detained (laughs) because until you experience that, Looking in the eyes of a cop and say, well, at least let me make my phone call. And he said, no, you can't make a phone call. And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, no, you're not under arrest. I said, good, let me go. He said, no, you're being detained. And until that happens to you, you keep thinking, but but of course I can make my phone call. Of course I can be representative. And you realize none of that matters. And it's gotten much worse because... You know, I don't know if you used to play cops and robbers when you were a little boy, but I did. And, you know, from all the TV shows, when the cops came and they caught you, what did they tell you to do? Uh, Well, put your hands up, you know. Put your hands up. (laughs) Right. That's how we grew up. It's no longer put your hands up. It's they throw you to the ground. 
And when I say to conservatives, what right do they have to throw you to the ground? You can be wearing a thousand dollar suit that they have now destroyed. And that has happened to people. You can cut them. They are innocent until proven guilty. What happened to hold your hands up? Right. Well, and how did that happen? Right. No. And and that's the thing, too, is, you know, when they destroy your property, they are under no obligation to restore it at all. It's just a, well, you shouldn't resist it. And it's like, dude, I wasn't resisting, (laughs) you know, so. By the way, even, you know, even that has kind of changed that you shouldn't have resisted. Well, again, I don't want to go too deeply into it, but where are we drawing that line? And that's why I've evolved so much towards the libertarian thing is what gives you the right to stop me and talk to me at all? So having lived in Israel, the law always seemed to be there. They could stop you and ask you for your ID. So you knew if you wanted to live in Israel, that was a freedom you gave up. But in America, they couldn't just stop you. And resisting arrest used to mean something. Today, resisting arrest means you don't like snap to attention and say a few German four-letter words or something. <laughs> so it's very, very different. Why shouldn't we resist arrest under certain circumstances? Like, go to January 6th or go to other times. Now, obviously, doing it is not a smart thing to do. And then they say, well, don't resist, and then you can always go to court. Well, I don't know about you, but my favorite lawyer joke is a guy goes to a lawyer and says, how much do you charge? And he says, $450 for three questions. And the guy says, isn't that a lot of money? He goes, yes, what's your third question? So when people say you can go to court, well, yeah, if you have $10,000 sitting around doing absolutely nothing, you can go to court six months later to try and get your suit back and your cut knee back and your reputation back. And people are so traumatized by it. I, I actually know somebody personally who was incredibly traumatized by being thrown to the ground by cops. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, I, I hate to even bring this up because it is so horribly sad. I mean, it, it literally, every time I think about it, it, it does make me want to tear up a little bit. But even Daniel Shaver, are you That's the worst. That? To me, that was the worst of the worst, yes. I. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and That's for, the one that probably moved me more than any other one. Yes, and for the audience, for anybody who's not aware of what happened with Daniel Shaver, I, I mean, look, you, you need to hear this. He was on his knees begging like a dog for his life. He was drunk. The cops started yelling conflicting commands at him. His pants were falling off. Well, he was wearing basketball shorts. His shorts were falling off. He reached back once to pull them up. The cop yelled at him viciously, and they had their guns trained on him, or they had their guns aimed at him. And they yelled at him and said, if you reach back again, I'm going to kill you, or I'm going to shoot you. And Daniel Shaver started crawling towards the cops again. And again, he is literally, this man is crying. He is a grown man. He is on the ground crying, begging for his life. And he started crawling towards them again at their command, and his shorts started to fall down again. He barely took his hand up off the ground, and they unloaded their clips on him. There were two officers involved with that. They both unloaded their clips on him. One of, or the, the officer who was uh, eventually accused of actually killing him ended up getting let go from the police force. He stayed gone for, I think, maybe about six months. The police force brought him back on for just long enough to process his pension paperwork, and now the taxpayers are paying that son of a bitch for the rest of his life. That is horrible. That is absolutely horrendous. So I, I agree with you. To, to that extent, yes, there there is a very strong dividing line on conservatives and libertarians to that point, and, and it's one I haven't been able to fully rectify. Now, I personally... 
I do have a little bit more respect. Now, I, I went through a very anti-cop phase, but I do have a little bit more respect for sheriff's departments because you, you at least have some mechanism you vote for accountability. For What's that? Yeah, you have, you have accountability. And I've moved towards the sheriff's and the private police force type models because um, I, think uni- I think just putting a uniform on anybody changes who they are and even the best people can get caught up in that stuff. And it, it's a very difficult issue having made a transition. Please don't just use that piece that I made the transition. I don't want to get in trouble. But from more conservative to more libertarian, um, that was a very difficult switch to make, that the cops aren't always right. And some of them are way, way off. There has been, a, there has been movement in the conservative movement. So you take Daniel Horowitz, who I mentioned before, who's very conservative, who has blasted the police because arresting people over COVID, but letting people out for, for serious crimes. So there has been some movement, but at a gut level, I think it's really difficult for conservatives to change. Right. And I don't blame them because if you don't have law and order, you have chaos. And most of us are not psychologically healthy enough to embrace chaos. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And and even in the ANCAP space, that's something they, they recognize there's going to be some sort of police force. It's just they imagine a different way of doing it. Uh, and the, the most viable option I've heard for that is if you take a gated community, you can subscribe to a police force and you can do that through your insurance company or you can have an HOA and they just contract with the security force. And, and then you could just do that for each and every individual neighborhood. So there, there are other ways it could be accomplished. And, and I do think there's some some credence to that or, or some credibility to that. But bring it back in a little bit. So on the episode I did with Alu, he and I actually talked about some voting restrictions, primarily on my end. Uh, you seem sort of intrigued about that. So what did you want to talk about there? The, the uh, two wolves and the sheep problem, among others. And again, libertarians, I think, will have problems with it. I think a lot of everybody, a lot of every, you know, group will have problems with it. But I don't see how voting can work and be fair if you don't have skin in the game. And whether it's a residency requirement, whether it's a taxpaying requirement, um, I'm sure you've seen many of the interviews, men on the street, you know, who's the vice president, Uh, Michael Jackson, (laughs) you know, who's the president, I don't know, Michael Jordan. And, and, um, you know, how many continents are there? Um, well, let's see, there's Baltimore, there's Chicago, there's an article, and then these people vote. So if I were running the world, I would have a test. If you don't know basic stuff, you can't vote. But that's really unpopular, and especially in a more libertarian world, I think that's, that's very unpopular. But again, I don't know how it works if you don't do that. Well, so here, here's the issue from a libertarian standpoint. Here, Here's a very frequent issue that you would run into, you would get a lot of people who take the approach of Lysander Spooner and they would say, well, voting is violence and therefore you, we're just not going to have elections because we have a stateless society. And it's like, oh, okay, well, here in reality, you know, you're still going to be bound by the rules of society. So even if you say, hereby we declare we're never going to have elections, you're still going to have some sort of government force come up. Now, I, I would rather have some measure of democracy determine who's going to get to hold the reins of power versus a warlord just seizing it uh, personally. But to your point, when, when I was talking to Alu, one of the things that I brought up, I, I think there needs to be a combination of either property ownership, net taxpayer status, and a residency requirement. And, you know, it was really interesting. Uh, something that I mentioned in that episode was the Louisiana State Constitution of 1845. It went so far as to prohibit 
active duty military personnel from voting in state elections because they were not going to be there for, for very long. And, and that is something, especially for the states that are still decent, uh, be they more libertarian-oriented like New, New Hampshire or more conservative-oriented like Texas, that is something that the decent states need to realize. But, you know, along the same line, there, there's so much in American history that we ignore. Like, everybody thinks Civil Rights Acts, and they just think that's the best thing ever. But have you ever read the book The Strange Career of Jim Crow? No, I have not. So it was written by C. Van Woodward. He was from Arkansas, and he basically set out on a path trying to, vind- well, not really, I guess, vindicate the South, but he wanted to study Southern history and really walk away with an understanding of what actually poisoned race relations. Well, surprise, surprise, even right after the War for Southern Independence, race relations really were not all that bad. It, they they didn't get bad until after Reconstruction, and that was there was a lot of stuff that were that played into that. You know, you had the Reconstructionist governments that were basically installed by the general government. And in some cases, you had the carpetbaggers come down. They they inserted uh, former slaves into political offices who had no idea what they were doing. And, and I don't blame the slaves for that. Obviously, they were deprived of an education. You, you probably couldn't really expect anything else. But the carpetbaggers did this out of spite, and that's when you really started to see those race relations get poisoned. But anyway, fast forward into the 1950s and 1960s, when you had Southern voting restrictions get struck down, something that Woodward found was, if you go back and look at it on a per capita basis, literacy tests actually impacted and took out more poor whites than it did for blacks. And actually, Thomas Sowell writes about this. He's got a book called Black Rednecks and White Liberals. And uh, Sol even gets in, into the weeds on this as well, where it's like you have these poll taxes and these literacy tests that actually disfranchise poor whites at a higher rate than it did for black people. And yet it was still struck down because there was this myth that it was a disparate impact on blacks. Now, one of the big things for the literacy test is you, you had a grandfather clause for illiterate whites who were older. Like I, I think it was if they had voted in at least two previous elections, then they, they were going to be grandfathered in. But if they were had voted in at least two previous elections, they were going to be grandfathered into it. And with that, there was no provision to the same extent for black people. And so that that's one of the key provisions that was actually struck down when all these lawsuits started going forward. But to your point now, it's like, OK, we have a multiracial society. If we can apply these tech, these techniques and say, look, you have to be able to read at least at a first grade level. I don't I don't think that's a high bar to, to clear, you know. Well, nothing against Harvard. It was a Reagan's famous joke about something being cheaper than four years in Harvard. But they, I think in some of the best colleges, they find that they know less about American history after graduating than they did before they went to school, et cetera. So I don't think it's so much a literacy test as some kind of civics test. If you, don't, if you can't name the three branches of government, you shouldn't be voting. And when you look at kids on college campuses today... They know absolutely nothing about the government, and yet they still vote. So I think there needs to be some kind of qualification. And by the way, voting, this is going to go over really well. I think voting is a privilege and earn it. And you know what? If you can't make it to the polling booth, it's not that important to you. No, I I definitely agree. I I don't think voting should be a a right just just by virtue of being 18 years old. And and you have Democrats now who want to lower that to 16. 16, yeah. But I don't think it should be a rite of passage per se, ju- just for reaching a certain age. I definitely think you need to have some sort of skin in the game because you shouldn't be able to, to put something on me that you're not going to be subject to. And that that's actually something up here. They they have a provision. You know, one, of the, 
One of the things I do, I'm going to interrupt you. One of the things I do is when I get into these kind of arguments. So let's say I'm sitting around the table with, you know, me, you, and your canine over there, right? So we decide that even though you invited me over for dinner, we just voted to take your house. And we're the majority. Well, you say, but that's not what you're here for. I never gave you that power. And I'm like, exactly. Now you agree with me. So democracy works if you follow some kind of constitutional boundaries whatsoever. We didn't empower Congress to do what they're doing. You're right. They don't get a right to vote all the things they get a right to vote on. So it's the same thing with if you don't have any skin in the game, how can you, the, you know, the millions of you who put nothing into the till vote to take more from me? How did you get empowered to do that? It doesn't doesn't make any sense. Well, and, and to that point, I agree with John C. Calhoun. And, and on my show, that's not really controversial because of, of the nature of my audience. But for the public at large, they don't want anything to do with Calhoun. But have have you ever read his disquisition on government? No, sir. So he in that in that essay, it's, it's kind of an extended essay. He he put forth his idea of what he called a concurrent majority, where it's like you have to give the minority some sort of political ability to say no and have it be an absolute no. And you know, I I think in in modern times that could that could come in a multitude of different varieties. But my my preferred one would be you have to have some sort of geographic majority along with a numerical majority. And he sort of hinted at that. Uh, he used South Carolina as an example. But let's take a statewide tax, right? If you're in New York, New York City by far is the most populous area within the state. If they want to pass a statewide tax that is disproportionately going to flow into New York City, what what can the rest of the state do uh, under current conditions? Because all it takes is a numerical majority of the state population. But what you could do is you could say, well, look, we're going to subdivide and, and actually organize the counties a little bit, and we're going to have the counties take a more active role in this. And not only do you have to win a majority of the citizens, you actually have to win a majority of the counties as well. And you could do all kinds of stuff with that. I mean, I would, I would be in favor, especially for statewide taxes, I would be in favor of saying you need a two-thirds majority of the counties. Now, you could have a bare numerical majority within that two-thirds ma- majority of the counties, but you have to win a majority of the geographic region. You cannot just let one one city dictate the entire state's politics, which is starting to happen in a lot of different states because cities are getting bigger most and bigger. Of, yeah, most of the states have a core blue, you know, the cities are blue and they control everything. That's But, the, but then you look at an electoral map and it's like 95% of the counties went red. Mm-hmm. Well, you look at North Carolina, you know, you got the blue area, the Raleigh-Durham triangle, and you got a becoming blue area in Charlotte and all this stuff doesn't matter that the rest of the state is hard red, et cetera, et cetera. Same Washington state, Oregon, Illinois. So many states are like that today. Even Maryland would probably not be nearly as crazy if it weren't for Baltimore. Well, and and even Louisiana, you know, that Louisiana is so weird because they, they have a red state culture with blue state politics. It, It is so, it's insane when you see that like firsthand, if you ever go there it is really weird to see that because you still have a lot of like older school Southern Democrats who refuse to wake up and realize that the Democrat Party is not what it was. But uh, even in Louisiana, though, the, the more progressive areas like New Orleans, Baton Rouge and Shreveport and, and Shreveport, I, I really do blame it on the federal military presence because I really don't think Shreveport would be nearly as big as it is without the base. And it's like, OK, how much of an outsized impact do they have? I, I don't know the answer to that question for full transparency, but 
you know, you got these three metro areas. They're really starting to dominate state politics, and that's a big, big complaint of, of people who live in Louisiana. You look at the last several governors who were elected down there, every single one of them came out of the, the New Orleans area. And the most recent one, his name's John Bell Edwards. There was some controversy because he, when it, when it was disclosed how much money he spent on advertising, I think it was something like 98% of his ad dollars only focused on South Louisiana, and that, that's all he needed to win. So it's it's weird uh, because, again, you have a very, very red state culture down there. And, and when you look at the federal elections, uh, most of the time, at least over the past probably 20 years, maybe 30 years, they've gone for the Republican every time at the federal level, but they keep installing Democrats at the state level. And it's like, guys, wake up. This is not the party it was back in the 1940s. Did you um read the book by, uh, he wrote it under the name Tom Sawyer. Tom Kent wrote it, Two-State Solution for America. You familiar with it at all? Uh, you've mentioned it to me. I've not had a chance to read it yet. It is a fascinating concept and it kind of answers these types of problems. And his basic idea is geographic units could vote as a unit, whether city, counties or whatever, to become part of red America or blue America. And that was his very complicated way of solving this issue of 95% of the counties being red, but the states being controlled by the blue. And it's a really interesting idea. Of course, you have to have the power and the, uh, and the will to make changes. But as far as letting, you know, how do you keep the wolves from voting? Very, very tricky. But getting back to what we said before, you're not going to keep any perfect society, even if you get secession and even if you get every all the borders that you want, you're still going to have to control who votes. Yeah. Well, and to that point, too, one one thing that's been so fascinating since I started doing my show, because I, I've been forced to read a lot more early American history, is early, especially like colonial and very shortly post-colonial Virginia. Have you ever studied old Virginian society? No, my mom's from Richmond. Does that help? (laughs) So, you know, it was highly, highly aristocratic. They they had a ton of qualifications to be allowed to participate in the body politic. And some people now, they look at that and say, well, it was just the slaveocracy. And, you know, yes, most of them ended up being slaveholders, but was... Was it a society that cared about freedom? Yes. Actually, a lot of contemporary descriptions of Virginians from that point, people describe them as like haughtily jealous of of their liberties, you know, like fiercely, fiercely jealous of their liberties and and basically contentious because they, they saw everything as a slight against their honor and their freedom. And it's like, okay, but that was a society that actually produced some of the most renowned statesmen in American history. You have Spencer Rowan, John Randolph of Roanoke, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, James Madison, John Marshall, on and on and on and on and on. And it's so interesting because when, when Jefferson came on the scene, he was a product of of that society, but Jefferson actually wanted a leveling force because he, he didn't think it was a good thing for a son to inherit, you know, a a completely intact plantation and and just have that be the, the standard law of the land. So Jefferson, to, to some extent within the state, was a big-time reformer on stuff like that. But you have the opposite side, which is John Randolph of Roanoke. And his whole thing was like, look, Thomas, change is not reform. You know, we, we can have all this stuff that we want, but change in, change for change's sake is not reform. And do we really want to break this down? Because look at what it's given us. And, uh, you know, to that extent, even though I go by Mr. Jeffersonian, unfortunately, Thomas Jefferson ended up kind of winning that exchange and, and the old societal barriers of, of Virginia were, were slowly but surely broken down. But we need some sort of society 
not not obviously not with slaves involved because slavery is bad but we do need some sort of society that is aristocratic to an extent where people have to pass certain tests to be allowed to participate and that that can take a variety of, of different things i mean you could even have a poll tax and people now you know they hear poll tax and they're like oh my god jim crow racist no you can make it five bucks but if you, if you can't afford five bucks to vote you shouldn't be voting in the first place Yeah, I, I know the poll tax, it rubs the wrong way, but there has to be some kind of commitment, some kind of skin in the game, some, some kind of investment in what it is you're voting for. Um, when 49% of people pay no federal income taxes, it's over. You, it, it, that for sure doesn't work. But, you know, I think when you bring up, you know, the Virginians, and I'm very partial to Virginians, but the biggest problem in the world is... See, I know I'm right about everything, but I'm willing to admit you may be too. And once I start deciding what's good for you, that's where it becomes a problem. So Jefferson may have been an unbelievable genius, but once you start imposing your beliefs on somebody else, that slippery slope is what gets us from 1776 to 2021. Well, I guess to me, that that society in particular every one of their early politicians were independently wealthy and we, we can argue, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Do, do they need some sort of sense of, you know, beholden? Can we agree not to talk about it till we taste that for about 10 years? What's that? I would like to try that out for about 10 years before I come in. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, in, in a perfect world, we, we'd get that, that testing period, but they, they had politicians who, were very independently wealthy. And, and even to vote in old Virginia, you, I think you had to own at least, if you had unimproved land, I think you had to own at least 50 acres. If you lived in, in town and you had a like a townhome, I, I think it was five acres or, or maybe two acres. But you had to have property to vote. You, and, and then they, had a, they actually did have a county unit system, which is what I was talking about, where the counties got together and they elected the politicians. But you had a very small cabal of people who were basically trusted with appointing the different political offices. Like the state legislatures got, got a whole bunch of autonomy when it came to appointing the, the judges and everything else within the state. So it, it's so interesting because even though it was so highly aristocratic, the citizens of Virginia had a very high degree of liberty, very, very high degree of liberty. And a lot of the Southern states actually were, were better with that. Now, granted, the, it, it didn't extend to the slaves, but when you look at the free populations, the southern states actually have way more liberty than, than the northern states, and, and especially back during the colonial period. I'm sure you probably heard of, of how the Puritans uh, persecuted like the Quakers and, and basically anybody who agreed, who disagreed with them. But again, that's all about trying to control somebody else. Which Many, many years ago, somebody wrote, I wish I remember who, that all of the world's problems, micro and macro, are people trying to control each other. All the wars are that, and all the family fights are that. And... I think you have to be incredibly highly evolved to move away from that, which is where I do side with the libertarians. So even though I do know what's best for you, but it's none of my business and you get to know what's best for you too. Well, and, and I guess that's where I've kind of gone away from, from libertarians, at, at least for now. Um, when you, when you have state governments who have the infrastructure to resist like Ron DeSantis I think he's doing the Lord's work, but you, I mean, you have citizens in Florida who are like, no, I want to, you know, I like, I want the school board to implement a mass mandate. So 
in that particular fight, I'm going to side with the state every time as, as long as the state is, uh, and I'm going to be, you know, I'm, I'm going to cherry pick here, but as long as the state's doing what I want them to do, I'm going to side with the state on that. Well, there was a story about a lady arrested in a hospital in Jacksonville, an old lady, a 70-year-old, because she insisted on staying with her daughter after some kind of major surgery. So even Florida, unfortunately, you got these pockets of craziness. And I have to tell you, those issues, I think, really mess with our minds. Because no matter which way we go, we're going to be inconsistent. You know, when DeSantis says state power, we're good. And when somebody else says state power, we're not. It's big problems for me. Well, and, and but that's the whole beauty of secession. I, I guess the, the point of mind that I've gotten to or the frame of mind that I've gotten to is you're going to have some states that, that are bad. California, most likely when they go, they're going to they're going to say, look, if you want to have a business here, you will bake the cake. You and I may disagree with that, but that's California's prerogative. Now, Texas, on the other hand, or Florida or New York or anybody, they could say, look, we're going to have this checklist. It's only going to have five things, but you have the right to discriminate, right? You, you know, you have that First Amendment right. We're going to protect your right of association or freedom of association. And that's fine. Like, I, I think really that's the best that we can hope for at this point. Do, do you think I'm off base there? No, I totally believe. And again, I keep going back to peaceful separation. I think it's the only prayer we have. Um, I'm totally in favor of discrimination, by the way. And I think in a perfect world, if I want to put up a sign that says no redheads allowed, I'm probably going to go out of business a lot faster than the guy who said redheads are welcome here. And I think in today's world, it's true about pretty much anything. I'd be a fool. On the other hand, if I say I'm not pro-choice and I don't want to contribute towards your abortion, that should be my right. And I, I got to tell you, without going into that, because that issue for libertarians and conservatives is the really, really difficult one, because you have to control it if you believe it's one thing and you can't control it if you believe it's the other. So we're never going to solve that issue. But yeah, everything's got to be far more local than it is. And as, as I'm sure you've heard, one of my biggest arguments for secession is to keep these governors from looking towards Washington as their goal. So instead of governing for their states, they're governing with the eye on how do I get into Congress? How do I get into Senate? How do I run for president? Well, Calhoun talked about that, too. In his discourse on the Constitution, he he basically spelled out 200 years ago. He, he was like, look, we're going to get to a point where loyalty to state is treason to, to the general government. And, you know, especially January 6th and, and things of that nature, that that's what we're seeing. And anybody who who detests the idea of secession, that's exactly what we're seeing. It's more important to be an, Amer an American than it is to be a Coloradan. And it should be the exact opposite. It's like, look, this is my home. You know, granted, I'm not originally from Colorado, but while I live here, this is my home. And, and these are the laws that I'm subject to. So uh, along that topic, though, you had mentioned prior to recording that Andrew Wilkow recently came out against secession. What, what were his arguments? Because you, you kind of you, you didn't seem too um, impressed. I, yeah, I listened to about two thirds of it. And frankly, he used some kind of an analogy that at least on the first listen did not make any sense to me at all. I don't even remember what it was, but it was so off topic. I didn't even get where he was going. It wasn't even a cogent argument. As to why, I know he was talking about, well, if we follow the Constitution and the states should be this and the states should be that and all that's really wonderful, um, I should be a lot of things, but we're not. And he just, he went off on some tangent and I'm going to listen to it again. But again, it's that you're stuck in that Pledge of Allegiance, which I said religiously until a couple of years ago, and I no longer say it only because of the one word indivisible. And I don't know who got that word in there. I, 
I said to Alu today, I said, all those against secession, will they be against secession in a thousand years, in 5,000 years? Does the United States have to last for a million years? Like, when did anything ever last forever? I don't get that. Well, you you know who got indivisible in there, right? That was some communist dude, right? Yeah, Francis J. Bellamy. And I actually, I ever since I got out of the military, because around the time I got out of the military is actually when I when I had my first uh, love affair with libertarianism. And that was around the time I, I started refusing to say the pledge because I, I kind of dug in and, and learned a little bit about the compact theory, not so much about that at that point. But I, I just... I couldn't square that circle. It's like, I'm not going to say indivisible. Like I, I refuse. How did anything become indivisible? We live in a no-fault divorce world. Nothing is indivisible. Well, and even the Soviet Union was allowed to break up. If the Soviet freaking Union can yes. do it, why can't we? Nothing. And, and again, they say, well, we're perpetual. What is it, forever? Like, what does that mean? Well, when they hold up the articles, because the articles are, are what said the union was perpetual. So when they hold up the articles, you you may have heard me talk about, or actually, no, I'm sorry, that was on a different podcast. But the Articles of Confederation, uh, specifically Article 2, it explicitly said the states retain all sovereignty and independence and freedom. And, you know, it's, it's so crazy because perpetual back then, it, it didn't mean perpetual in the sense of forever. It meant perpetual that it did not have an expiration date, so you would not have to periodically re-ratify it. Now, granted, I think that would actually be a good feature is every maybe every five to ten years you got to send it out for re-ratification. But we have to, you know, we have to have some nuance. But I love it when people bring up the articles to try to say, well, look, it's a perpetual union. And it's like, okay, well, then are you willing to take Article 2? Because Article 2 says the states can do all of this stuff. So if you're going to say that the articles are still in force underneath the Constitution... Are you going to be consistent? Obviously, most people are not. Apparently, you know, the Roman Empire must still be extant and the Persian Empire must still be extant and the Greek Empire must still be extant because why are we the only country in the history of the world that stays forever? Well, and and it's crazy to me, too, because one one thing, it, just kind of keeping it on, on the track of the Articles of Confederation, when the Constitution was, was ratified, what do people think happened there? Now, to me, I take A.T. Bledsoe's stance. You had to secede from the Articles to accede to the Constitution. Obviously, that that specifically shows the states have the right to do that. And there were two states that actually didn't even ratify the Constitution right away. You had Rhode Island and North Carolina who operated as independent countries before they uh, ratified the Constitution later on. So... I think when, when people try to use the Articles of Confederation, specifically that line about it being perpetual, that, that's a losing proposition for them either way. It's like, okay, look, if the Articles are still in, in effect underneath it, we can mm-hmm. still do all this stuff because states are explicitly given this authority. If, on the other hand, you're going to say, well, they had to secede to accede, it's like, okay, then you've already lost the argument. At, at the moment they secede it, that set the precedent. They have the every ability to do this. And even Thomas Jefferson in his first inaugural address, have, have you ever read his first inaugural? No, sir. Yeah. Hang on one second. Let me actually pull that up. Let's see. I have to tell you, I don't make, I don't need any arguments for secession other than the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, the, the last paragraph. If that, if that doesn't rule, let's go back to Britain and get a nice accent. And so everything else to me is really nice, but if we... Don't believe in the right to secede. We need to move back to Britain, period. <laughs> yeah. No, you know, the, the declaration, the, the last paragraph, these United Colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states. 
how can you say it any more plainly than that? Well, and it also it said there's going to come a time when you need to start over again. Control, alt, delete. They just didn't have those keys yet. But the point is, either we believe that or we believe we shouldn't have seceded from Britain. And some people are saying that the American, the United States was born of secession, period. So how can you say it's not right? I, I absolutely will never get that. No, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, when you look at the war for Southern independence and the American Revolution, it was the same principle. Now, I think that people in the North, especially now, they, they have to basically um, give themselves a, a little bit of an easing of their conscience because they force people to stay in a relationship they didn't want to be in. So we now we have what Brian McClanahan calls the righteous cause myth, where, where we're taught it was over nothing but slavery. Very little was actually said about slavery, at least on, on the part of the South. Now, granted, you had the cornerstone speech from Alexander H. Stevens. There's a lot of evidence, and, and he himself said he was actually misquoted with that. But Jefferson Davis's book, The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government, that's over a 1,000-page book, and, and slavery maybe got 20 pages out of that. Much more was dedicated to the compact theory. Much more was dedicated to, look, we believed in the right of self-determination. And so it's, uh, you know, it's definitely, it's something for people to, to say that the American Revolution was a holy cause and then turn around and, and spit on the, the South for the, doing essentially the same thing. But I, I have Thomas Jefferson's first inaugural address pulled up here. There's a section in here, so just for context, there was a faction of the New England Federalist who wanted to leave at this point. They, they saw Jefferson basically as the Antichrist. They thought he was going to be horrible for the shipping industry in New England, so on and so forth. And so they were very vocal about wanting to leave and create a New England Confederacy. Thomas Jefferson, in his first inaugural, speaking to the people, he says, If there be any among us who would wish to dissolve this union or to change its Republican form, let them stand undisturbed as monuments of the safety with which error of opinion may be tolerated where reason is left free to combat it. That, that's a U.S. president saying that after getting elected. Not, so that, mm-hmm. that's not even him stumping. That, that's him already securing the nomination. Yeah, and that's before we had a strong federal government. Well, you know, and to that point, even John Quincy Adams, j- just to kind of show a different side of this, John Quincy Adams actually was pro-secession, and, and I forget the name of the document, but he actually signed off on a pro-secession document, and this is what he had to say about the, the topic. He said, If the day should ever come, may heaven avert it, when the affections of the people of these states shall be alienated from each other, when the fraternal spirit shall give away to cold indifference, or collisions of interest shall fester into hatred, the bands of political association will not long hold together parties no longer attracted by the magnetism of conciliated interest and kindly sympathies, and far better will it be for the people of the disunited states to part in friendship from each other than to be held together by constraint. Thank you. Send me that paragraph, will you? Yes. Yeah, I will definitely send go it right on top of my website. Yeah, I will definitely that's what send it. It's all that. about part in a friendly way, because the alternative is not going to be good. No, it's not, and that that's so. I, I recently made an appearance on on a podcast called All Out War, and his, his audience, uh, the the host's name is Turner Turner Miles, a great guy, but his his audience he said would probably be most accurately described as Christian nationalist. And, you know, when you start thinking about issues like Roe v. Wade and, and the abortion topic, cr- Christians have already lost that battle. And, and I think a lot of them have not, I guess, faced the music with that. Because prior to Roe v. Wade, abortion was illegal in 46 out of 50 states. After Roe v. Wade, now it's legal in all 50. So that's a very dangerous game for them to play. But, you know, to the same point, you still have a lot of Christians out there who— 
they, they want to drape themselves in the flag and just think this thing is indissoluble. All we have to do is make sure our people win. And it's like, look, you don't get the right to force your beliefs on everybody else. Like you were saying before, just like, you know, a society like California who may not be as religious, they, they should not have the ability to force their way of life on you. This is why this is desirable because the more that you try to force it on them, the more they try to force it on you. We're all just going to be pissed off all the time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But Rabbi Axelman, I do want to thank you so much for your time today. We have just about reached the end of our allotted time here, but do you have any final resources or thoughts you want to pitch to the audience? Um, no, I want to pitch the website Americans United for Peaceful Separation because that's what I think is a better word than secession. I think it's even a better word than national divorce. Like you just quoted, I believe, John Quincy Adams. We got to do this in a friendly manner. How it's going to happen, I don't know. What it's going to look like, I, I don't know. But I do know that what we're doing is not going to a good place. No, most definitely. And I actually, I do want to give your podcast a shout out too. That is the Liberty Block podcast. Uh, it's available on all major podcast platforms. Definitely worth checking oh, out. I, I listen our show to is EJS on the Liberty Block. EJS on the Liberty Block. Okay, I'm yeah. sorry. I, I shortened the name a little bit, but That's yes. okay. Not a problem. Liberty Block is the parent company. Okay, I see. I see. But yes, I've been following that thing uh, pretty faithfully since, since you and I first spoke. So I, I've gotten just about caught up now. I'm caught up back to at least the first part of September. So I, I wow. want to encourage the audience to listen to your show as well. Great. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yes, it has. And guys, please remember, if you find value in the podcast to consider contributing to the show, you can contribute on a recurring basis through the supporting listener link in the show notes page, or you can make a one-time contribution by using the show's cash app information, which is also included in that show notes page. Any contribution amounts help, and thank you again to everyone in advance who decides to do so. And also, please consider downloading the MeWe app and joining the show's private MeWe group so we can have more sane and rational discussion around historical and current political issues. And all right, with another episode in the books, thank you again for tuning in, and I will talk to you all next time.